Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, there's an announcement on the New York City subway where a voice chirps, Attention everyone, there are 150 accessible subway stations. One can imagine an alternate world where we'd hear, only 150 of New York City's 472 subway stations are accessible, and that's a problem. But people with disabilities are meant to be grateful, excited even, for whatever access or accommodation is made available for them to participate in daily life. There's often an implied corollary suggestion that any violation of the rights of disabled people is an individual matter to be fought over in the courts rather than something to be acknowledged and addressed societally. The overarching law we do have, the Americans with Disabilities Act, is meant to be proactive. It is, the government website tells us, a law, not a benefits program. In reality, though, the ADA still meets resistance, confusion, and various combinations thereof, 33 years after its passage. And news media, as a rule, don't help. The Supreme Court recently dismissed, but did not do away with, a case that gets at the heart of enforcement of civil rights laws for people with disabilities, though not them alone. Atchison versus Lawfer is an under-the-radar case that our guest says is part of a pattern of far-right reactionaries weaponizing the courts to dismantle labor protections, housing rights, and health guidelines. Ariel Edelman is a disability rights advocate and policy analyst. Her piece with Haley Brown appeared recently on CEPR.net, the website of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. She'll tell us what's going on and what's at stake. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at recent press. A new investigation by the Boston Globe and an HBO documentary excavate and spotlight the multiple system failures around the 1989 murder of Carol Stewart by her husband, Charles Stewart. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu issued a public apology recently to Boston's black communities for a treatment that was, she said, unjust, unfair, racist, and wrong. Referring to the intensive manhunt unleashed by law enforcement after Charles Stewart called police on the night of October 23, 1989, claiming that he and his pregnant wife had been carjacked and shot by a black man. Those words were enough to lead to police harassment of entire neighborhoods and the arrest and imprisonment of Alan Swanson and Willie Bennett, the latter of whom Charles Stewart identified in a police lineup. Charles Stewart, if you don't know, later died by suicide after evidence of his murderous hoax, he shot his wife and himself for cover, came to light. The Boston Globe and other local outlets are exploring the story fairly earnestly and asking what reckoning around it might look like. So I was struck by this headline in the New York Times, Mayor apologizes to black men falsely linked to murder that exposed Boston's racism. 
Boston's racism? For real? Elite media will indict anyone but themselves. But it wasn't the city of Boston that led the New York Times and the Cleveland Plain Dealer and the Miami Herald and the Chicago Tribune and the Los Angeles Times and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the San Diego Union-Tribune and, you know what, I stopped counting at that point, to bring their local readers uncritical parroting primarily via wire pieces, of the facts that a black man had viciously attacked a white suburban couple in a mixed-race neighborhood, and so maybe we should bring back the death penalty. And it's not the city of Boston preventing those outlets from revisiting whatever impulses led them to do that today. When black people call for media reparations, it's not about the past. It's about the way that every day in every way, our guilt is the premise. Even if it can be disabused, if some researchers get interested in 34 years or so after the harm is done. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. In 2000, when the Americans with Disabilities Act was already 10 years old, actor Clint Eastwood was accused of running a California hotel with inadequately accessible rooms, bathrooms, and parking lot. It's just not fair, the millionaire complained, and his beleaguered stance found echo in the press, with the likes of ABC's John Stossel wondering... If people with disabilities want access to a business or an accommodation that bars them, why don't they just ask? Presumably the answer could be no, but wouldn't that be the decent thing to do rather than bringing a lawsuit? Which, as Eastwood quipped, means lawyers, quote, drive off in a big Mercedes and the disabled end up riding off in a wheelchair, close quote. ABC's Stossel in a segment called Give Me a Break, introduced by Barbara Walters, called legal efforts to enforce the ADA a shakedown racket. The presentation recasts human rights, never mind compliance with a decades-old law, as fundamentally corporate noblesse oblige. Unfortunately, that still inflects media coverage and forms part of the backdrop of a current legal case, Atchison Hotels versus Laufer. Our guest will bring us up to date on what's happening and what it means. Ariel Edelman is a disability rights advocate and policy analyst. Her piece with Haley Brown on Atchison v. Laufer appears at seeper.net. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Ariel Edelman. Hi, good to be here. Well, most recently in December, the Supreme Court declined to hear Atchison, and that's significant, but it doesn't mean the core of the case has been fully addressed. So I'm quite sure that many listeners have never heard of this case. So if you could talk us through, what are the facts in Atchison versus Laufer, and, and what's at stake? I'll give a brief overview of the background of the case. Laufer is a disabled woman with multiple sclerosis who acts as a civil rights tester, specifically for the ADA. Testers are 
people who basically check to see if people are in compliance with a certain civil rights law. There are individual testers and testers who volunteer or work for legal organizations. And so Lawfer began testing hotel websites for their compliance with the reservation rule after a personal experience with a hotel that violated the ADA's reservation rule. The incident forced her to sleep in her car when she arrived at the hotel, only to find that the room was inaccessible to her. And something important to know is that it's completely free for businesses to comply with the reservation rule, which is part of the Title III of the ADA. All it means is they have to add accessibility information about their rooms and other facilities. Even if they're inaccessible, the hotel just needs to say the room is or isn't wheelchair accessible or does or doesn't have visual fire alarms, for example. Right. So Lawfer was acting as a tester when she sued Atchison Hotels for failing to comply with the reservation rule. And um, after the Supreme Court heard the case on October 4th, they dismissed the case on mootness because Lawfer withdrew her claim in fear that the decision would upend tester rights as a whole. And it's important also to know that lawsuits filed by individuals are currently the primary enforcement mechanism for the ADA, which is already generally under-enforced. The DOJ is technically in charge of enforcing the ADA, aside from individual lawsuits. The the DOJ can sue ADA violators or they can attempt mediation, which only comprises a tiny percentage of cases. And the DOJ really doesn't have sufficient incentive, really, to pursue ADA violations in court, even when they're egregious. And so civil rights testers for the ADA, for the Civil Rights Act, for the Fair Housing Act, for any civil rights legislation, they're really needed And unfortunately, that also means that individual suits are an unfair burden, especially when it's on people who are being actively discriminated against. And testers kind of fill that gap so that people with very few means, uh, which is important to know that disabled people are generally living in forced poverty, they don't have the means, the time, or the health, really, to bring a lawsuit to sue every single person that violates the ADA, if we were doing that, every disabled person would just constantly be in court <laughs> suing people. Right. So testers are really needed to fill that gap. The objection to testers has been mm-hmm. about standing, right? Yes. So the big issue at the center of this case is standing. And standing is basically whether or not you have the right to sue. And the case that sets up important precedent for Atchison v. Lawfer is Havens Realty Corp v. Coleman, which was a 1982 Supreme Court case that established standing to sue for civil rights testers, regardless of whether they expected to be discriminated against, and importantly, regardless of their intent to, for example, in that case, buy or rent a home. So Havens established it doesn't matter if you do truly intend to use that good or service, If you're discriminated against, that constitutes a real injury, and that includes dignitary injury, but that's a bunch of, (laughs) there's a bunch of legalese we could go into that the article covers, but uh, basically you need to know, Haven's already established, you don't need to actually truly intend. Unfortunately, the court's opinion in Atchison and Atchison's lawyer's argument hinged in part on the idea that Lawfer supposedly had no intent to stay at the inn owned by Atchison Hotels. 
in the court's opinion and Justice Thomas's concurrence repeatedly referred to lawfare and to civil rights testers in general as quote unquote serial filers, which to me showed pretty open disdain for civil rights testing, despite testers having standing enshrined by havens for over four decades at this point. In case anyone is missing it, the idea <laughs> is if you are a, a person with a disability, you need to wait until you are actively suffering harm, and then you can have standing to sue. And we can't do proactive compliance Mm -hmm. testing with testers who go in to see whether, in fact, these accommodations or venues or whatever are compliant. The idea is, well, you were just pretending you were going to stay at this hotel, and therefore you don't have standing to sue that the hotel or whatever is inaccessible. That's kind of the status quo that the conservative elements of the court are gunning for and business interests in general are hoping for because they don't want to have to comply with uh, civil rights law, even if it's completely free to comply with it. And the idea, I think, for the general public is, well, we have the ADA, so something has already happened to make all businesses aware that they need to be compliant. And and so why do lawyers need to get involved? But the truth is the ADA doesn't have a lot of aggressive enforcement attached to it. Mm -hmm. So there's a real critical role for these testers, yeah? Exactly. And the point that my co-author Haley Brown and I make in our report is that one, testers fill a really important gap in enforcement. And two, if people are really taking issue with the concept of civil rights testers, that means that we would need to have really aggressive, as you said, proactive enforcement on the part of the government to enforce these civil rights laws because people right now are just getting away with completely flouting civil rights laws with no no consequences. Well, what do you think are the implications if Atchison versus Laufer goes the wrong way? I mean, what should folks understand? This isn't, I'm happy to center the ADA and disabled people at this point, but it does actually have huge implications if we decide that civil rights testers don't have standing to bring lawsuits. So this case was dismissed on mootness. But if you read the opinion of the court and the concurrence by uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, they make it extremely clear that if this were not dismissed on mootness, they would have ruled in favor of Atchison, which would effectively upend and eviscerate civil rights testing. And that has really dire consequences for enforcing and maintaining civil rights in general, because that means that overwhelmingly disenfranchised impoverished, really under-resourced populations are now being burdened with the task of enforcing major federal legislation. And again, (laughs) these communities are extremely under-resourced. How would we go about suing every single time we have our rights violated when that happens every single day and the businesses we're going up against often have these monstrous legal teams that could take down anyone in court. And of course, with a court that doesn't want to side with disabled people, it's really just bad news for civil rights in general in the United States. Well, Counterspin listeners in particular might remember the case Food Lion, uh, in which reporters in 1992, reporters from ABC's Primetime Live, went undercover 
to investigate claims of unsanitary food handling at Food Lion, the supermarket chain. And they found it, you know, old meat being redated and put out again, out-of-date chicken getting soaked in barbecue sauce and then moved to the gourmet section. But then Food Lion sued ABC, not so much on the accuracy of the story, but that the reporters misrepresented themselves fraudulently by applying for jobs. And then since they were there fraudulently, they were trespassing. And Food Lion won. They won $5.5 million in 1997. And this chilled investigative reporting as inherently deceptive, mm-hmm. folks forgetting stories that they couldn't get otherwise and revealing things that were true and in the public interest. And I tie that here because Atchison seems to have implications also for journalism, mm-hmm. at least in the way that it touches on the public's right to know and the right to know things that folks don't want to show us. Interestingly, the opinion talks about the right to information, or I I should say, I think it was actually Justice Thomas's concurrence that talks about whether or not people have a right to information under the reservation rule. And he argues that it doesn't, even though, at least in my view, in plain text and according to a lot of disability rights scholars, it does give you the right to information. And when business interests or even government entities are allowed to cloak themselves in uncertainty, even when people affected by their civil rights violations or you know health code violations, violations of any kind of protection, even if people know for a fact that they're violating these laws, there's really no way to bring that to light until you're actually harmed. And that could harm people. It can kill people. In the case of that supermarket, if we had to wait for multiple people to die, there's a death toll to not being able to uncover health code violations. In the case of the ADA, Lawfer had to sleep in her car. And who knows if someone has died because they slept in their car because they didn't have adequate shelter. What if there was a snowstorm? Uh, And that's just with inadequate access to information. There's, of course, issues of literal physical access to buildings. But I think people really undercount the importance of access to information, because if you don't have proper information. You can't make the proper decisions to keep yourself safe. And that's actually an issue of equal dignity. I wanted to quote from the ACLU amicus brief for Lawfer, where they said, quote, guaranteeing equal dignity with an animating purpose of the statutes, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, its other anti-discrimination protection, end quote. And I think that's really important to keep in mind is that equal dignity is at the center of basically every civil rights statute. And if we can't guarantee equal access to information, which is part of the issue in Atchison v. Lawfer, then you don't have equal dignity. And that is not only legally wrong as it constitutes a dignitary injury, but it's also morally wrong if we want to treat disabled people or anyone part of a marginalized group as an equal person in society. Well, and that equal dignity runs right up against, you know, where we started with, well, I mean, why don't they just ask? Why don't they just come hat in hand and say, hey, I'd really like to get into your restaurant. And then maybe we would say, okay, you could come around the back and we can let you in this other entrance. You know, Mm -hmm. dignity is often missing from that whole conversation about what businesses are required to do, you know, um, as if as if we aren't talking about human beings. It's so 
bizarre to me. I mean, it's not bizarre because I expect it because ableism is so entrenched in our society. But if you asked someone, oh, do you think it would be okay if instead of having robust health code enforcement, if we should just ask if people in restaurants could wash their hands before cooking our food, or if a small business dodged state taxes for 10 years, nobody would go, oh, well, they, they didn't know any better and nobody asked them for those taxes. Right. It's really not their fault. We only really treat it like this when it comes to civil rights. And it's not okay. <laughs> um, exactly. And a, a lot of that, I think, is because our society places a really high premium on productivity and sees disabled people and, by extension, other marginalized people, whether racially, in terms of gender, religion, they see us as a drain rather than as a vital part of the population. And as I want to point out to people, disabled people comprise at least a quarter of the population. And that's rising because of the ongoing pandemic, which many people have called a mass disabling event. So we comprise a very large part of society, but people see us as a drain, or they think that our rights shouldn't really be real because we're perceived as not being productive or contributing to society. And finally, the way that folks are seen has not everything, but a lot to do with news media. And back in 2000, many years ago, (laughs) I wrote about major news outlets presenting the ADA as mainly a regulatory issue (laughs) affecting private businesses rather than a human rights issue facing society as a whole. And my beef, among many others at the time, as now, was that we saw stories about it goes too far Mm-hmm. The ADA goes too far. It's too expensive and it harms and it's well-intentioned, but it actually harms. And that those stories were not sufficiently countered by stories saying, well, what if it doesn't go far enough? And then instead you get the hearty perennial of we've come a long way, but there's still a long way to go. It's not unique, but I feel like there is something special about the way the rights of disabled people a community that anyone can join at any minute, Mm -hmm. are somehow never urgent. They're never front page news somehow. There's never urgency attached to it. And I just wonder finally what you think about media coverage and what you would like to see more of, what you'd like to see less of in terms of news media. As you said, it's never seen as urgent or important despite it being the only marginalized group that you could join at any point. I think that most coverage is really unnuanced and tends to be overly sympathetic to business interests. There's one reporter that I think has had good coverage of this case specifically, which is Ian Milheiser over at Vox. I think his articles are excellent. With everyone else, there's headlines like the Supreme Court dodges this ruling or this woman sued over 600 hotels. But they never have any headlines that are anything like tourism industry tends to fail to comply with the ADA or this hotel owner and former anthropology professor repeatedly flout civil rights laws. And again, if it were any other major regulatory issue, nobody would really question it, except for maybe small sections of society. But most people think, yeah, we should probably have people regularly checking up to make sure the building doesn't fall down on us because it's not up to code or that we can escape in a fire or that people are washing their hands before they cook or give us vaccinations. And like you said, it's treated as not urgent. And I think in part it's because disabled people are not just seen as a drain, but we're seen as somehow cunning or Mm -hmm. 
kind of getting one over on the system. And that's really worrying, again, because COVID is a mass disabling event. And we've seen this kind of backlash before. After the 1918 influenza, post-viral disability skyrocketed. And so did the popularity of eugenics and and fascism. And so we've had reactionaries going after disability rights the exact same way they're going after immigration, abortion rights, racial equality, labor protections. And a huge problem is that people across the political spectrum, especially white people, are hostile to the idea that disabled people should have rights at all. And that really is reflected in media and then it's reflected back on the population and then artistic media reflects that back and then journalism it's kind of like a a cycle that perpetuates this idea that disabled people are a drain and their rights are somehow a zero-sum game that they're they're stealing rights from other people Mm -hmm. i did want to add in that there's really important work being done on these issues and that if people want to continue to educate themselves and to follow ongoing disability rights issues, look at my co-author Haley Brown's ongoing work on disability and labor, her co-authored piece, The Long Reach of Long COVID, and CEPR also has an updated chart book coming on disability and economic justice. So keep looking at those. There's really mind-boggling stats uh, that you'll find that CEPR digs up. Their work is incredible. Um, And I think everyone should look at disability as a cornerstone of civil rights as we are fighting against right-wing reactionaries. All right, then. We've been speaking with Ariel Edelman. The piece, Disability, Justice, and Civil Rights, The Fight Isn't Over After Atchison v. Lawfer, can be found at net. Ariel Edelman, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to learn about FAIR's newsletter, Extra, and to show support for the show if you are able and so inclined. The show is engineered by Riley Bear. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.